That's an amazing memory. I don't, um, I don't measure time in years. I measure it in kilograms. <laughs> uh, that's funnier to me than I think it is to you. <laughs> um, this morning's sermon is about uh, one trip I went on to Kenya. And uh, I, in writing up the story, what, what actually happened was uh, the lady on the end, or the, the middle there, the, the um, elderly lady, her name is Carol Platt. And her husband is next to her. That's Leon Platt. And Carol's a retired school teacher and Leon, and in the Adventist system. And Leon is a builder and still works as a builder. And Courtney is a, a chaplain as well at an Adventist school up in um, New South Wales, north and south. And um, so Courtney knew, Cor- knew, um, knew Carol from school. And Carol was passionate about children in Kenya. Once she retired, she'd gone over there just on a holiday, and then she had seen all this need, and she'd been asked by someone, would you help? And she just got very excited. And um, once you've met her, you, you, you get excited too. Um, and so she invited me to come with them to Kenya, and I explained to her that um, I couldn't afford an airplane ticket to Kenya, um, but I could afford to um, give her my words. And I said, my, God has gifted me with the ability to communicate, and I'm happy to use that in any way that will help further your story. Um, I, I'll go over, and she wanted me to come over and tell Bible stories to the kids, the orphans that had been rescued from various situations. And um, I said, I'd love to. And I said, and I'll take notes on all the stories I hear, and I'll write it down, and we'll try to get it. We'll send it to a bunch of publishers and um, see if we can get it published. It's very hard to get a book published. Um, you can write a book, but to get it actually in this form is often takes a miracle. Um, and uh, so she was excited about that idea, and so we went, and I, I started writing. And um, every day, the men that we were visiting, there was two men that we visited. We visited for one week in Maasai land. Um, we lived with a man named Joseph, who his job, like his passion, was going and rescuing kids who were in tough situations. And he rescued um, girls that were being forced to marry at like 11 years old. Um, and he rescued boys who, I'll tell you a story of one of them who lived in slavery or lived in abusive situations. Um, often, they, most of them, I think all of the ones he rescued are not with their parents, they're with other people. And um, so he... Um, he told me story after story, and we would stay up late at night, and I would take notes furiously on my laptop and then try to fashion them the next morning into a blog, and I'd put them on my blog. And, and when I got home, amazingly, I had 20,000 words. And so I thought, okay, I need to put this together with some meat, like why was I there, what did I learn, that kind of stuff, and see if I can shape it as a book. And so what I ended up with was this. And then I sent it to all the Adventist publishers, and uh, luckily I have... I used to work at Signs with Kim, and, um, and when I worked out at Signs, I was working on the Signs magazine, but I was also editing occasionally books, but mostly magazine articles, and, and, um, but I, I got to meet the people that, and they say in publishing, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and I got to meet the people from all around the world that worked at the different publishing houses, so when they see an email from me, they're more likely to open it than a random email from someone else, um, and so I got lucky that they all opened it, and they all looked at it, and they all said no. Um, they all said, boy, Dave, we like it, but we know how these uh, missionary books sell, and everybody loves a missionary book, but nobody wants to buy them. Um, they just want them in their church library, and that's not enough. And so I said, oh, okay, but the, the biggest interest was from Pacific Press, which is our biggest publisher, and the reason why they take on some projects like this is because they are a distributor right through the world. They go to all the ABCs through the other publishers, and they end up in 
even, you know, even Melbourne, Australia, <laughs> from Idaho, where they publish them. So they end up everywhere in the world. Um, and so they said we would – we love it. We would love to publish it, but we know we can't make enough money on it. So um, we would just recommend maybe self-publishing it. And I had an idea – that I'd never floated past them before on, a, on another, a different, it just hadn't come up before, but I thought, I know Carol wants a stack of these books of her own that she could use as ministry tools. So I wrote back and I said, would it be viable if we bought a certain number and what would that number be? And he went back to his people and he came back and he said, yes, if you would buy a thousand books at the cost that it costs us to produce them, you would pay for our print run for, for not just the thousand, but for the 5,000. And then we could on-sell them, and we would be able to make a profit, and it would work. And so we did – well, Carol did that. And so now I have a bunch of these books, and what we're using them for is not to sell. The ABC sells them, but we use them as gifts to donors. So at the end of today or any time during today, there's a website down the bottom there, and there's a drop-down menu that says donations or contact – no, it says – it either says help us or donation, something like that. And if you make a donation and tell me you've done it, you can have a book afterwards. Or if you want me to make a donation on your behalf after, um, after the service, just hand me whatever your donation is and I'll hide it. And, um, and then you can have a book. I've already pre-signed the books and there's a little note inside the books of how to contact Carol and myself and anyone else that you might be interested to get involved if you want to actually, she loves taking people over on trips and stuff. And I would invite you to do that. Um, I, I, it changed changed my life. It changed my thinking, changed my understand of uh, my understanding of poverty and my understanding of even myself and my role in life as a person who's passionate about seeing change in other people's lives. Okay, so I want to start here at the waterhole. This was actually the end of our trip, um, and we did. One week with Joseph, who I told you about in Maasai Land, and then one week with Nestor, who is a man who runs an Adventist school in a little, oh, it's a big town, big, uh, small city, called Eldoret in um, the north of Kenya. And um, we spent a week with both of these people, and then we went on a safari, and we had to drive for a day to get to the safari, and then we spent two days safariing, and then a day to the airport, and then flew home. And when we were on the safari on the second day, the tour guide got excited because we had been following this um, male lion, and he had tried to get a gazelle and, and chased it into the field, and it got away. And then he was kind of – and we'd watched him for a long time because the tour guide said, I want to get you a kill. I want you to see a kill. And um, it didn't work. And then he saw the lion kind of not – going anywhere, just looking dejected, and then his ears pricked up, and he looked up, and the tour guide looked as well to where the lion was looking, and there was dust on the horizon, and the lion, and the tour guide got excited. He said, oh, you're going to see a kill now, and he drove. He didn't follow the lion anymore. He said, I know where he's going, and he drove around, and he came up the backside of this water hole, and the lion is actually hiding just under there where I've zoomed up, and we're kind of down around the bend, and we're watching, and this lion hid there, and as he was hiding... Some wildebeest started coming to the waterhole. Now, this picture is a little bit later because it looked like this herd or whatever, a mob, it was giant, of wildebeest was going to come, and it looked like for sure they were all going to come across the water and the lion was going to get one, and that's what the tour guide said. And he said, you are going to see a kill. And Carol said, no, I don't want anything to die. And um, I said, you're in Africa. You have to see the real thing. And Courtney said, no, I don't want to see anything die either. And I Oh, women. And then as we were, <laughs> as we were um, waiting and I was going, are we going to see a kill? 
these water buffalo, then you see grow through the middle there, they came walking from downstream and they walked right up the middle and across the, the, the river and up the side of the bank. And the tour guide said, oh, no, the bullies are here. And I said, bullies, what do you mean? And he said, oh, they're so big. They scare everything away. And he said, you watch. They'll go. They can smell that, that lion from way down the river. And they came up here, and they're going to go walking right at him and make him leave. And they did. They walked right up the embankment, and they just walked straight into the lion. And he sloughed off to the side and walked away from his hiding place into, the, into view. So all of these guys stopped, of course. And then the lion actually padded right past our four-wheel drive. And he just looked like it, it's a bad day at the office. You know, he was... And he walked past. And as we were then driving along looking for something else interesting, um, and we saw a lot. We saw everything we wanted to see. Um, the conversation started going. Carol came up with this idea, and she said, you know, um, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is like those water buffalo. The Holy Spirit sees, God sees our lives, and he sees what's happening, and he, and he sends the Holy Spirit in to protect us. And even when... Evil is hiding, you know, like a roaring lion. And she actually, like, this is a scriptural idea. It's, it's, um, it's in Peter. It says this in 1 Peter 5, um, verses 6 to 10. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him because he cares about you. Be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little. The dominion belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. So this is what she was basing the idea on, that the devil's like a roaring lion and the Holy Spirit, she added that in, is like a water buffalo. And he's come in and he, he's driven the devil away in this instance. But I always, I don't know, this fits really well in this story. I like to play the devil's advocate often when, we're in, when I'm in conversations. And in this one I said, but Carol, what about when that doesn't happen? Like we wouldn't be in Africa if the devil didn't have his way with these kids. And she's like, that's true. And I could kind of hear, just feel her husband go, thanks, Dave. You know, great. Now we have to be sad and morbid for the rest of the trip. But um, I, we, we chatted about that for a little bit, but then we left it, and we didn't say anything for quite a while. But we started thinking about, or she started, and, and actually everyone was thinking about, so what is going on with this problem? And it's actually the number one question that people who – do and don't believe in God, that they ask, why is there so much suffering in the world? And if there is a God, why doesn't he fix it? Um, if he is all-powerful and if he is all-loving, like there shouldn't be all this suffering. And it's one of the answers that every religion tries to answer. Where does life come from? Where does death come from? And why is there suffering in the middle? And this uh, question stayed with us as we're bouncing along, and it caused me to kind of reflect on my trip. And this is one of the young men that I met. This is Angelo. When Angelo was born, he was born under a curse, they said in his village, because he was born out of wedlock. And being born under a curse meant that the father demanded the, the pregnant woman to have an abortion, and she said no. And being under a curse meant that when the baby was born, that her own father, the, the baby's grandfather, hired a midwife to poison the baby when it came out. And that poisoning didn't succeed, but it did give little Angelo, um, seizures. 
um, for the next few years of his life. And then the grandfather, because he failed, he took the baby one morning and took it outside and he put it at the, they always put their, their goats and sheep into, and cattle, really, it's mostly cattle, into an enclosure that's made out of sticks and uh, has a stick gate. And they open it in the morning and encourage the cows and they, they go out through the gate. So he put the Maasai blanket down and then he put the baby on the blanket. And then he went in there and he yelled and screamed at the cows and made them rush out of the enclosure. And when the mom and grandma heard him yelling, they said, something's weird, something's wrong. And they ran out to see what was wrong. And they saw the cows rushing out and the baby on the ground. And they couldn't get to the baby until the last cow had come out. And then they went down and there wasn't even a hoof print on the blanket. The baby had been completely stepped over by every single cow. And Grandpa got upset, even more upset, because the stupid cows, you know. And um, so the mother realized, I, I can't keep Angelo here because he's in harm's way because of Grandpa. And so she sent him to live with his uncle. And when he was two and a half years old, living with his uncle, his uncle, the curse, they, they, what they do basically is once they think someone is under a curse, anything bad that happens anywhere nearby is because you've got a person in a, under a curse in your house. And so they blame everything negative that happens. And the uncle was convinced that he was um, being receiving bad, um, bad things because of having Angelo in his house. And so he sold Angelo at two and a half years old to a man who had four sons but sent them off to boarding school. That's what all kids go to boarding school in Kenya um, because um, – Everybody, nearly everybody walks everywhere. So walking to school, if it was any more than a couple kilometers away, wouldn't be possible every day. So they send them all until the, the holidays. And it's very cheap. Like for um, if you're interested in thinking of the numbers in, in your helping, $45 a month puts a primary school kid through boarding school. How is that even possible? Like that's one trip to McDonald's for my family. Um, it's just phenomenal. And um, $200 a month is the Adventist high school the most expensive um, Adventist high school in Kenya is $200 a month. So somewhere between there, you can educate a kid for a month, and it's, it's just amazing. So um, anyway, little Angela was taken by this man who had his four kids off at school so they couldn't look after his cattle. And little Angelo, basically any, <laughs> any animal in Kenya knows that if there's a Maasai man with a stick, you walk away from him. And even a kid with a stick. It's the stick that the animals learn to obey. And so little Angela, walking around with his stick, was in charge of this man's herd of cattle. And he wasn't allowed in the house unless there were visitors there so that it looked like he was being cared for. He slept outside most of the time. And he was disliked by all the village kids and anyone else who went to the waterhole because he acted different. He, um, For the next two years, he lived on his own as um, a slave in, and uh, as a wild child. And when he was five years old, Joseph heard about him. And this is Joseph. Joseph's the one who gave me this nice shirt. And Joseph heard this story, and he went in to meet Angelo. And when he went in, are you guys um, recording this, or can I walk away from the microphone? Should I take it with me? Yep. So what happened was um, Joseph had to go in at night because he said, if I went in during the daytime and walked down the road, everyone would see me and they would phone call. Everyone has mobiles. Um, and the reception's really good out there because it's rolling hills. And so 
they could just call and somebody would say, there's, there's someone coming to visit you. And the, uh, the man would go and get the boy and make it look all, all okay. And so Joseph didn't go at night and he, I mean, didn't go in the daytime and he also didn't go down the road because he didn't want anyone to make that phone call. So he went through the jungle and to go through the jungle means that all the wild animals that you can't see because it's dark are in there. And so I said to him, as he said, so I went through the jungle and, and, um, it's 27 kilometers from where he was to get to this boy. And, Masai men walk fast, but I was like, can you really walk 27 kilometers? And he's, I, I asked him, I said, can you really walk 27 kilometers in one night? And he said, I had to walk back that night, too. And I said, how can you walk that fast? And he, and he said, is this too far for you, David? And I said, yes, it's too far for me. And he laughs, and then he says, um, no, it's, it's not that hard. It's just once you go, you just keep going. And, um, and you know, people that do speed walking in the Olympics, they walk at 14 kilometers an hour, so... You could do it. Um, so anyway, he walks in through the jungle, and as he's saying this, you know, and I said, wait, wait, wait a minute, what about all the animals, like you, the, the, the rhinoceros and the lion and the, the scary animals and the, oh, that's fine, you just use a giraffe. And you walk in, so he said, so I walked in, I was using a giraffe, and I, was, and I said, wait a minute, whoa, 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 you, you can't ride a giraffe. And he laughed, you know, of course you can't ride a giraffe, they're back, no. And, he, and I said, so you said you use a giraffe, what do you mean? He said, okay, um. The way that a Maasai man uses his stick to keep the cows and make them move. And I said, yes. He said, the, the giraffe also respects the stick. And so if you go to the giraffe with a stick, he will, will go away from you. And he, once he sees you have the stick, he doesn't want to be near you. So you just stay directing him where you want to go, and he'll keep moving away from you. But if he smells something that's dangerous, he will... F- rather fight you than the thing that he smells and he'll stop and he'll back up against you and then you know give him some space he'll go around whatever is dangerous and then you you push him again and you can get through and he said so that's what i mean i use a giraffe and i said wow um so he uses a giraffe he gets to the jungle he finds little angelo asleep under a bush and when he finds him he wakes him up and he thinks i don't know what he was thinking but he thought he was going to have this lovely conversation with this boy but every grown-up who's ever touched angelo wanted to do him harm and every kid who's ever seen Angelo throws stuff at him and is mean to him. And so Angelo, when he wakes up, he starts apologizing and saying, don't hurt me. And, and so Joseph has to explain, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to rescue you. And he said, what, what is rescue? And he said, well, to take you to, to school so that you can be with other boys and girls. Oh, no, no, I don't want to be with other boys and girls. They don't like me. They're mean to me. Oh, no, they won't be there because there's other grown-ups there. And the grown-ups will uh, make sure that they're nice. No, <laughs> grown-ups, they are very mean to me, too. Um, I don't want to be with those other grown-ups. And he said, well, what about, like, food? There's lots of good food there, and they'll feed you. Said, I have the berries on the bushes and the goat's milk, and I'm, I, don't, I don't need food. And he said, well, a house? Like, there's a roof? He said, I, I'm okay sleeping out here. And Joseph talked to him for a while, and then he, he said, so you don't want to come with me? And he said, no. And he said, okay, well, I didn't come to kidnap you. I came to rescue you. Um, I'll see you later. And the boy said, okay, bye. And Joseph got up and he used a giraffe his way back through the forest. And he stopped at the nearest village, which was four, 14 or 15 kilometers away. And he waited until um, the people were up and about and stuff, or maybe they were when he got there. Um, it was morning, I'm not sure. But when he, when he met people, he started asking them questions about this little boy. The people who he knew were looking out for the good of the boy. And they said, it's true. Everyone's mean to him. He's weird. He does weird things. He says weird things. He's, he screams at kids and runs at them, and he acts like a wild animal. And so the kids, yeah, they're not nice to him. And, and sometimes we have to drive him off our property with his, his animals. And, um, and so Joseph realized, I need to go back. So he waited a day, and then he went back in, 
and used a giraffe and got in there, sat down with the boy, woke him up, started talking to him again, spent the whole night talking to him and telling him stories about when he went to school and stories about other kids, his friends when he was a kid and just stories. And then he said at the end of the night, so do you want to come with me? Do you want to go to a place like this? And he said, no. And he said, okay, I'll see you later. And he left. And he waited a day and he came back. The fifth time that he came back, two weeks had passed, and he finished spending the night with chatting with this little boy, with Angelo, and he said to Angelo at the end of the night, so what do you think? Do you want to come with me? And Angelo said, when you talk about friends, like when you talk about these kids that will treat me nice and adults that will be nice to me and, and, and say nice things to me, do you mean like, will they be like you? And he said, um, yeah, yeah, they'll be like me. So they'll be nice like you. He said, yeah, that's, that's how most people are out there. But I'm sorry that so many people have been mean to you, but all the people that I take to you will be nice like me. And he said, well, then I will come, to you, come with you if you make me one promise. And he said, what's that? And he said, if they're not all nice like you, you bring me back here. And he said, okay, deal. And so he took little Angelo, and they walked back through the jungle, and he put him in school, and he was in school for two or three weeks, and the principal called, Angela, called Joseph up and said, you have to come get this boy. He is unteachable. He can't sit in class. He can't listen. He, he does not obey, and he's like a wild animal. And Joseph said, well, it's true. And um, he said, well, you have to come get him. And Joseph said, try harder. And he said, no. He said, we have all these other kids. We can't focus on just one like this. So Joseph said, okay, I'll come. So Joseph came, but he didn't take Angelo away. Joseph went to school for three weeks, and he sat next to Angelo. And he just held on the back of his shirt whenever little Angelo tried to get up. And he said, not yet. Recess isn't until another hour. I want to go now. He's like, no, you need to stay. We're learning about this silly number seven. Okay. I will listen. And then they sit there together, and they're like buddies. And after three weeks, Joseph said, do you think I can go home, and you'll be okay in school now? And Angelo said, yes, you can go home. And Angelo now, he's been in school. He's, he would be, now it's been two years more, so he'd probably be in grade seven. And when I was there, and he was in grade four, grade five, sorry, he was uh, number three in his class. And he just got the idea of, oh, learning is like this. I've been learning all the time in my life. And think about his learning curve. Like he had learned some really tough examples and, and life choices and whatever. And so he actually is doing very well at school. But when I was there, Angela wasn't too sure about me. And here's one of the times. I think this is, oh, I, didn't, I don't have that picture in this slide. I have a picture of Angelo in my other presentation where he's, he's like this and we're, we're on a walk. And he's just a little ways away from me. But it's about as close as he ever got to me, and it's probably as far away as you are. And what he would do is he would lean in, and there were two things I had going against me. One was I was a Mazungu, and a Mazungu is a white person, and there weren't many white people there. Um, the four of us that were there were about the only ones he'd seen uh, probably ever. And so I had that against me. And the other thing was I was big, and big people there are extremely rare because all the Maasai men are really tall and skinny and the women are thin and the kids are all thin. Everyone walks everywhere. So of course they're really fit. And I was big. And what it means if you're big there is that you have so much money that you can buy all the food in the world and share it with no one and just eat it all yourself. And so when he saw me and he was like, and what he would do is he'd come in about this close and he'd lean forward and he'd go, Big Mazungu. And then he would run away. And then, and then he would come back up and he was like working up his courage to 
big muzungu, this animal of the forest that he was encountering, this big muzungu. And <laughs> one time as we were on a Sabbath afternoon walk, I saw him reach down and grab something and, uh, and bite it. And I, I looked down to see what else could be there, and it was just dry. It was, it was um, summer. And um, so I looked again, and when I looked at him with this kind of a, a weird expression on my face, like a squint, he saw me, and he, he looked at me, and he stuck something in his mouth really fast. Like, you can't have it. It's mine. And um, so I went to Joseph, and I said, Joseph, I think, I think I just saw Angelo bite the head off a grasshopper and then eat it. And he said, oh, yeah, there's a lot of protein in grasshoppers. And I said, but he wouldn't know that. And he said, David, he survived for years on his own outside. That's a trail snack. And I said, oh, okay. And so uh, little Angelo, you know, all the big mazungus that he would do to me, the one time that I got the closest he didn't know about because I, I brought a couple picture Bibles, and I have a picture of him sitting, um, looking, hovering over this picture Bible, turning it on his lap, and he's just flipping pages. And... Um, the final picture I have of him, which is not on here either. It might be actually at the end of this presentation. I'm not sure, but um, he's not in it. It's all the kids that Joseph rescued. Joseph's taking the picture, and Angelo's not in the picture. And when I do that other presentation, it's for kids at schools. I go around to state schools and do presentations on diversity and, and um, um, intercultural thinking. And, and um, I, I put that picture up, and I say, so why do you think – and I make more of the big bazungu thing in the story. So I said, why do you think that Angelo's not in that picture? And everyone – the kids, all the front row – because you're a big mazungu and I said, that's right because i'm a big mazungu and so little angelo like he is still learning and he's still growing but he has that ability now he has that potential because joseph um heard his story and was able to rescue him so there are just so many stories and that's the only one i'm going to go into great detail and one of the reasons why is because it's one of the only stories i can tell in the company of of children that um is safe there's the, most of the reasons why kids need to be rescued in in Africa are because of horrible, horrible things that are happening to them, which you've probably read about or, or heard about. This little boy, his name is Lakini, and Lakini was attacked in the night while he was asleep. He and his three brothers, um, seven men broke into their house and killed mom and dad with machetes. This is one of those other stories. And then came in and killed the three boys, they thought. But Lakini, even though he'd been wounded badly, he wasn't, he hadn't died. And so... When he came out of the house or some people came in to see after the men left and they did their chant and their woo-woo-woo and, and they ran away and the neighbors knew something had happened. And so they came in and they found Lakini still alive and they called Joseph and Joseph came in a four-wheel drive. He, he got a taxi, um, four-wheel taxi and came and picked up Lakini and was holding skin on the top of his head because it was gaping and holding him together and they took him to one hospital and they said his wounds are too bad here's some more um, fluids and some more and they hooked it up in the four-wheel drive take him to the next hospital and he went to the next hospital and the Keeney lived and the day that they came walking in we were doing storytelling and every morning I was telling bible stories and more and more people were coming and grown-ups were coming with the kids and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and the, gr- the crowd was growing and the beans and rice afterwards was getting more and more and more and um this uh, little boy and his uncle came, and he'd been living with his uncle and, um, since the, the incident. And when his uncle and him arrived, it was when I was preaching about Luke 15, which is all of the lost things. And I told the story of the lost coin, and then the story of the lost sheep, and then the story of uh, the lost son, or two lost sons, really, the, the stranded father um, who welcomes his son home. And... Um, Afterwards, uh, 
Lakini and, and his uncle came into the house. And Carol, once she realized who it was, she got excited because Joseph had told the story of Lakini to her. He wasn't in school. Um, but just he was one of the many who needed to go to school. And um, so Joseph had this story, and he had told it to Carol. And when she started hearing it through the translator, oh, Joseph was translating, but hearing it again, she went, oh, Joseph, this is the story you told me about. And he said, yes, this is Lakini. And she just turned to me, and she said, we, we have to put this one in school. She said, I don't have um, a sponsor for him yet, but we have to put him in school. Normally, she doesn't take anyone for sponsoring until she has, I mean, take a new one until she has a sponsor. But this time, she said, I just I know his story, and we have to help this boy. And so she just turns back to Joseph, and she says, so what's his name? And he said, Lakini. And she said, no, no, he has to have a, a Western name. What's his Western name for school? And so um, they asked. Joseph asked the uncle, and the uncle, no, we don't have one. And then he, Joseph said, um, choose one. And so they looked at each other, and they talked for a bit. And then they said um, to Joseph, and Joseph looked at me, and he said, they want him to be called David so that one day he can tell the stories of God like they heard this morning, the way that you told them. And, yeah, it was, I got all teary right then. And I, um, when I think back about it, I just think, to give your name to someone, you know, you name your children when they're born, but to have someone choose to have your name because they want um, God to be alive in their lives the way that he is in yours, um, that's kind of what disciple-making is all about, isn't it? Is, is mentoring someone until they become, you know, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So, Lakini um, is David, and he's at school. So here's Joseph, and this is the day that he gave me this shirt. And um, Joseph has a big heart for for kids. And he said to me, he said, David, I receive a call about a child in need of rescue nearly every day. I have 15 children in the program right now, and this is three years ago. Um, They are fully sponsored to go to school. They have food, clothes, education, and most important, they are safe. Joseph paused, and then he asked, Do you know how many children are on my list, children that are verified and need to get on the program? I said, How many? 161. That many need to be on the program. Joseph studied me with his powerful Maasai stare. Can you get me these sponsors? David, is this something you can do? And I said, Joseph, I will try. I will tell your story. And this is something that I know because of my family situation, and probably you know it because of your family situation. I said to him, when Western people's hearts are touched, they're very loving and they're very generous. But in the West, everyone is asking for money. So we need to hear real stories about real people where it's really helping and he said, when well, you'll tell the stories. And I said, I will, Joseph. And he said, thank you, David. Thank you so much. This is his favorite word. Thank you. Thank you. You say it for the most random things. In the morning, I came out one morning and I said, oh, I got up really early this morning to go down um, and use the bathroom. It was a long ways down. They built a special outhouse. And um, so I went down and I said, and when I came back up, I saw little Brian with a stick. He's five years old. I saw little Brian with a stick leading one of the cows up the hill. And Joseph said, oh, thank you. For what? It's like, thank you for telling me. Oh, okay. And if, I, if you said, it's a beautiful day today, thank you. And this is his favorite phrase. So when I came home, I was using it a lot. Thank you. And um, all of my kids now, they, whenever they say thank you, they say, thank you. Um, I have three. They're all grown up, 18, 19, and 21. The 19 one is very sick today. Um, so Carol, on her way after the the... Um, 
safari, as we're heading back to Nairobi to catch the plane, she says, so if the devil was defeated at the cross, why are there such horrible things still happening? Why doesn't God act? If he knows what is evil and what is good, why wait? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he use that power and act now? And I said to her, I said, Carol, God's followers have a habit of getting God's nature wrong and teaching wrong things about God to our children. In Old Testament times, a few millennia after leaving Eden, they had warped the promise of a Messiah to mean that God would send a deliverer. God would send a person who would defeat the oppressors and rule with an iron rod. They were looking for a warrior king. And when Jesus came, they didn't see the Messiah because he didn't look like the Messiah they were looking for. Now, a couple millennia after Jesus has returned to heaven, we are convinced that Jesus came to show us God's power. And if this is true, that God has ultimate power and that all that happens on earth is then ultimately his fault. It's part of his plan. And this is a wrong view of God's nature. This is not what Jesus came to show us about God. Power is not God's defining attribute. If it was, he would take control. And Carol said, I see. Jesus came to show us God's love. So God's love, that's his defining attribute. And I said, yes, and within the bounds of God's perfect love, his perfect power lives. God gives freedom. Freedom of choice is the ultimate expression of God's love. The perfect love of God allows choices to be made, and then he honors those choices, but ultimately love will win. God's love is patient, it is long-suffering, and it can be seen everywhere while we wait. In Steps to Christ, it says this, God is love is written upon every opening bud, every spire of spinning grass springing grass, the lovely birds making the air vocal with their happy songs, the delicately tinted flowers in their perfection perfuming the air, the lofty trees of the forest with their rich foliage of living green, all testify to the tender fatherly care of our God and his desire to make his children happy. Um, As I was researching for the book, this idea of God's love versus God's power, I found this fantastic um, short paragraph about the, the statement in 1 John 4, 8, where it says God is love. And this um, is from the Holman Treasury of Key Bible Words. It says this, John made a wonderful proclamation when he said God is love. This means that God creates and sustains all things in love. Love is the very essence of God. No one could possibly be described as being love itself. Only God is completely loving because love is his very Entity, nature, and character. When John writes, God is love, he is giving the reader the clearest, briefest, most comprehensive expression possible of the nature of God. The divine love motivated, sorry, this divine love motivated God to give his son to this world to die for our sins. God loves and and as a natural consequence of this love, he gives us his son, forgiveness, salvation, fellowship, and eternal life. Believers can see the love of God most clearly in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples all had the wrong idea about Jesus, even though they knew him well. When they came to the waterhole with Jesus, the disciples knew about the devil and his angels. They knew about the lion and the crocodiles. But they thought that Jesus' power would dominate. They thought Jesus, the deliverer, warrior king, would walk unscathed through the world like an elephant at the waterhole. Jesus would be unable to be touched and would set up his kingdom. And so they looked for power in the life of Jesus. And they saw it. 
But what they didn't realize was that Jesus' power was confused in a greater, re- or was confused, confined in a greater reality of which is God's love. They watched what they thought was an elephant walking through the streets of Jerusalem and wondered how everyone else could miss it. Then they asked, when? When will he demonstrate his power? But they were looking for the wrong animal at the waterhole. All 12 disciples had a wrong understanding of Jesus, and thus God's nature was misunderstood. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and yet the disciples were still looking for Jesus to swing his massive tusks, call 10,000 angels, and set the world to rights. Judas and Peter both took a step in this direction. Judas sold the location of the praying Jesus, hoping to startle him into action. Peter drew his sword and took the first swing, Jesus, on the other hand, picked up the ear Peter had removed and replaced it, healing the head of the man who had come to take him prisoner. Peter and Judas both fled the scene. Judas couldn't live with the decisions that he had made. Peter couldn't see where he'd gone wrong. Both men acted out the doubt and confusion of the twelve. Jesus was supposed to win, wasn't he? But they had misunderstood the nature of Jesus. He hadn't come to show power, but love. He hadn't come to fulfill the wishes of the disciples, but to reveal the nature of his father. He hadn't come to the waterhole as an elephant, stomping his way to victory. He hadn't come to the waterhole as a buffalo, sniffing out and scaring off the devil. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He hadn't come to show God's power, but God's love. And Jesus showed God's love by entering the waterhole as a wildebeest. Like many others before him, Jesus was lifted up and nailed to a cross. Rome had crucified thousands, and even on that day, there were three. Jesus entered our waterhole like any of the millions before him. The roaring lion looking for someone to devour leapt upon Jesus, driving his clawed nails into hands and feet. The crocodile, Leviathan, roused from despair's depths, took a hold of Jesus' side, and beginning the death roll, pulled Jesus under into murky darkness. And Jesus died. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. I give you a new command, Jesus said. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this... All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Carol said, so we just love these kids and that's enough? And I said, it's not that that's enough. It's more than enough. And I told her the story of a principle that I have. Being a chaplain in the state school system is fascinating because my goal, um, I, I actually sign on the dotted line. I'm not allowed to proselytize. I'm not trying to convert anyone to be a Christian. But I am a Christian, and I'm speaking from that place, and I'm ministering. I'm caring for others. It, it's called spiritual care. That's what we're there for. And we have to be, you have to be, to be a chaplain, you have to be a person of faith because they know that people of faith exude something about life and the meaning of life that they want in schools. And so I was sitting down with my principal. She called me, and she was 72 years old, and she was choosing whether that year, and she did. At the end of the year, she retired. And she said to me, she said, David, all my friends are dying. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, I've just been to too many funerals. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, you know, I like your kind of funeral better. And I said, my my kind of funeral? I'm thinking, Do I have a funeral? Um, I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, there's really only two kinds of funerals. There's secular funerals and there's Christian funerals. She said, they're the same when you're inside, 
The people talk about the person who died. They say good things. They tell stories of their life. They remember them in positive ways. But then when those people leave, those people are very in very different places. She said in the secular um, setting, when people leave, they're sad and they're, they're devastated because they're never going to see that person. They know. Scientifically, they know 100% they're never going to see that person again. And, they, and they're right. They won't. And they walk out and they're feeling that and it's heavy and it's horrible. And she said, but your kind of funeral, the Christian, she said, they don't know they believe. And they believe, she said, there's only really one word for it. It's when they leave, they, they leave with hope that they're going to see that person again, that that person is going to be with them again, that they're going to be able to share stories again with them, that they're not, it's not all in the past, but there's a, a joy in front of them where they're going to re-encounter that person. And, she, and I said, you know, that doesn't have to be the other kind of story for you. That could be your story too. And she said, no, don't, don't, don't start there. She said, I'm too old for that. And I said, no, you're not. You're never too old to accept Jesus into your life and, and have the joy of knowing eternal life is yours. And... You can meet the people that you love. And she said, oh, I, didn't, I didn't call you in here to, to, do, to talk about that. I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that too, too many people are dying. And then I said the words we always say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for your loss. And she said, yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. And I said, you're welcome. So I told that story to Carol. And I said, so do you see the difference of what you're giving these kids? And she said, that's true. We're giving them hope. And we're giving them the the hope that, that it's not just that they now have an education, but that they have a life ahead of them that, that where they can do so much more because we have rescued them from situations where they would have been stuck in oppression and poverty and, and maybe not even having an adult life, dying before then. And I said to her, you know, Joseph and Nestor are disciples who understand that living among the wildebeest is the best way to reach the wildebeest, just like Jesus lived among those he came to save. Joseph's living in his community, reaching out to its borders, saving children as he hears about them. And Nestor, this is Nestor here, he left his home in Rwanda, and he came to do health seminars. He's an Adventist um, health presenter, and he came to um, Nairobi, first of all, in, which is in Kenya, to do health seminars for the people there. And then he went to the next place. The next, When he got to Eldoret, which is the place where he now lives, he was running a health seminar, and after the health seminar, a little boy came up to him and said, um, I don't have any way to go to school do you have somebody who could could you help me could you maybe give me some money so that or pay for the school so i can go to school as i i would be a good student i promise i wouldn't run away i would do good and he said i don't do that um let me ask around. And there were some German Adventist tourists that were there. And so he chatted with them, and they had been on one of his seminars, and they said, we'll sponsor him to go to school. Sure. And so they said, we'll go with him to school, and we'll set it up with the principal. So they did. And that little boy went to school. And then a couple days later, that little boy comes with a bunch of other little boys. They're like, could you help us go to school too? And, and Nestor said, oh, boy. I'll try to find some people. So he talked to the Germans again, and they said, yeah, we have friends back in Germany. And they called up, and they made some things, and they, yeah, 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 let's go talk to the principal. And they put a few more kids in school. And then Nestor became known by the kids who were living in the dumps and the tips and this beautiful lady named um, Yukabeth, that if you went to Nestor and asked if you could go to school, it was possible that you could, um, and he would try to help. And so Yukabeth now walks the, the in the in the dumps. The kids sniff glue; it's shoe glue, and it's so bad for their brains that if they sniff it for more than a, a week or two, they damage their brain permanently. And so Yukabeth walks through, and she looks for new kids, 
And if there's a new kid, she goes up to them quickly and says, do you want to go to school? Because she knows if they're there for long, they won't be any good at school because their brain would be fried. And she brings them to Nestor. So Nestor, at one point, was running a health seminar, I think. Um, oh no! Anyway, what, what had actually happened? He had put a whole bunch of kids into schools all over the place. And Carol and Leon were over there staying in the guest flats, which um, I'll, I have a picture of in a minute. And while he, they were in the cafeteria there, they met Nestor. And he started telling them the story and stuff. And Carol loves asking people this question. And she asked him, she said, Nestor, what's your dream? And he said, oh, that's easy. My dream would be to build a, an Adventist school where we ran the school on Adventist health principles and all of the the orphan kids that um, I've put into all these other schools, that they went to that school and any other kid who wanted to that we could find sponsors for, we could bring them to that school, but where they would live a healthy diet and they would have a healthy education and they would play outside a lot and they'd have a huge garden and um, they would learn um, to live the way that God made us to live. And Carol said, well, we should do this. Let's, let's do it. And so they found a school and they rented it. And of course, this didn't happen immediately, but they over time, they rented the school and they said to Nestor get your kids. And so he went to those schools and, you know, he had 46 kids in all these different schools and he brought them all together to this Adventist school now. And they started up what they call Hands of Hope Academy. And at Hands of Hope Academy, that's the picture of the rented property there. Um, you can't see the school. It's, well, you can see a bit of the building. It's a big horseshoe building. And, um, the kids live there and eat there and school there and play there and um, have heaps of fun. Um, and Nestor told me, he said, after our first year of running school at the end, we ran a special evangelistic program for the kids. And 28 of the kids were baptized at the end of the first year. And um, it's just, yeah, it's beautiful. This is the way Nestor explains it. Hands of Hope Academy is like an Adventist home for kids who don't have homes. I, ab I allow them to choose. I provide healthy options, and I teach them why these are the best. And when they're off campus, they can choose to live the lifestyle they want. But I know that for, for now, at least half of them are vegetarian wherever they are. And last year, we ran a seminar and, and um, had 28 of them baptized. So Carol said, so we're giving them hope and because we're teaching them about Jesus, and that gives them hope for a future beyond this world of pain. And I said, yes. And she said, and we're giving them an education which provides a chance for a happier life than they would have had on this earth. And then Carol said what I think every rescue-minded person says, I just wish we could help more, save more, change the lives of more children. And I told her, I said, Carol, you are. You are doing it more, and you're doing it God's way. She said, we are? I said, yes, Carol. God doesn't see time like we do. When he rescued the children of Israel, he waited 400 years before mounting his rescued effort. When he did rescue them, it took 40 years to complete it. When changing the lives of many, God works on a generational timescale rather than performing quick fixes. She said, how is this like what we're doing? You're educating these kids. When they're grown and married, they will teach their children what they have learned. You're taking entire families out of poverty. And one child becomes one generation, and one generation becomes one nation in time. Kenya, you're changing the world, Carol, God's way. And then she lit up, and she said, like Amos. And this is the Adventist um, boarding house I was telling you about. This is the cafeteria. This is Amos. He was their very first sponsor child, and they got him when he was, like, in grade five. And they took him all the way up through high school, and then he wanted to go to university. They put him all the way through university. And this was after he had just graduated, and he came to find them because he knew they were staying there. And this is when we were all there. And he said, I finished my degree in mathematics and statistics. And he said, and now I don't know what to do with it, like, 
you're in Kenya. What are you going to do with a statistics and mathematics degree? And, and um, he said, so I think what I have to do is go back to uni and keep going until I can get a um, PhD or a master's so I can work in hospitals. And that's what most people do with a degree like this. And you could see Carol's brain going, uh-oh, he's going to ask us to sponsor him to go to higher, like, university. Um, and she said, how much is that going to cost, Amos? And he said, I don't know, but I'll find out. I wanted to ask you first if it was okay. And she said, well, is this what you want to do? And he said, well, what I would really like to do is have an attachment. And an attachment is what we call an apprenticeship. Um, and to work with somebody who knows, who does a job like what I could do with my degree now, um, and, and I would like to start working and, and making money and sponsoring kids. That's what he wants to do with all of his money. I want all of my money to help kids to go through school like me. And he said, um, but... I don't know how to get an attachment because I don't know where to, where to talk to people. And she said, okay, well, we'll talk to people and see if we can get the money for your education. And he said, okay, thank you. And he calls her mom. So he said, thank you, mom. And um, then he went um, and we went and had our day. The next morning when I came into the same cafeteria, there was just one man sitting there. And he was at a Kenyan and he was on a laptop and he was furiously typing. And I don't normally interrupt people when they're doing busy work, but I... I was there for stories, right? So I, I went up and I sat down across from him and I said, do you mind if I sit with you? And he said, no, please. And I said, um, what's your name? And he said, Hezbon. And I said, um, you're pretty busy on your laptop. What do you do? And he said, oh, I work at the hospital. And uh, I said, are you a doctor? And he said, no. I said, nurse? He said, no, I don't work at one hospital. I work at all the hospitals in Kenya. And he said, I go from hospital to hospital and I ask them what medicines they ordered last year, how they used them, what patients they gave them to, how much they had extra or how much extra they needed. And I write it all down and I do spreadsheets and statistics and I write it all down. And when I finish, I give it to the government and then they can give them the right amount next year. And I said, oh, that makes sense. I said, what degree did you do to get into that line of work? And he said, oh, I did a double degree in mathematics and statistics. And I said, wow. So there was a young man here yesterday who did that same degree. And he was wanting, um, what do you guys call it, an attachment. And Hesphon hit the table. He went, I am looking for an attachment. And I said, you are? And he said, yes, where is this boy? And I <laughs> said, well, when Carol and Leon come in, they can tell you right where he is. And so they came in a little bit later, and I said, um, Carol, Leon, you need to meet Hezbon. He's looking for an attachment. And Carol's eyes just lit up, and she sat down. And as Leon was listening, and, and uh, this man was giving him all of his details and everything, Carol just looked over, and he basically had said to us, if you can link me up with this boy Amos, I, I will take him as an attachment. And, and Carol looked across the table at me as they were talking, and she said, God does this all the time. And I, and I, I smiled. And, you know, the next day we got a phone call from Amos, and he says, how did you do it? I got a phone call yesterday after late last night, and I have an attachment. I have an attachment. How did you do it? And Carol said, we didn't do it, Amos. God did it. So when we look at this, this world of children, and the world that we live in, there are thousands more, thousands of children, probably millions of children, who, like wildebeest, are heading into the waterhole. And it's a rare person who can live among them, like Joseph or Nestor or Jesus. It's a very special calling. Very few of us are saviors. But all of us are disciples. And like the disciple Peter, we're all alive still, because now that we understand it, we have accepted the rescue Jesus offered on the cross. And we've accepted the eternal life that he promised by conquering the grave. We have hope because we know 
the rest of the story. May we make this hope of a better life a reality for as many of God's children as possible. Join in singing with us now about this good, good Father that we have. Let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, we thank you for loving us so much, for loving us with a fatherly love and a love that exudes power, the power to save. We ask that you would bless us today and this on the Sabbath day and uh, fill us with your spirit and guide us as we study your word now. In your name, amen.